Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to two passages of Scripture. The first one is Psalm 116. If you'll turn to Psalm 116, and also, if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 38. Psalm 116 and Isaiah chapter 38. We're studying or continuing to study the concept of legacy, how to build a spiritual legacy, not how to, but what we would like to see is the result of it. There is no easy one, two, three step for the building of a legacy. We have to live it out. The goal being that our children and our grandchildren for generations to come might learn from us key biblical truths that will be used in their lives to reflect the glory of God. I like to put it this way, I hope my children will do it, that is, this wonderful venture called the Christian faith better than I have done it. And my prayer is that as each succeeding generation lives out their faith, that they will do it better than the generation before them. This is what I mean by building a spiritual legacy. And I'm using the book of worship for Israel. The Psalms are the book of worship. It was the hymnal, if you will, of uh, Israel. And I'm picking select Psalms that will highlight certain key principles for building that legacy. I have selected Psalm 116. Many authors or scholars believe that David is the writer of this Psalm. Uh, perhaps at the moment when he was hiding in the cave from Saul, or at a particular moment when he was being pursued by his son Absalom, the context of this psalm is facing death. In fact, I've entitled this message, Rest from Death's Door, because it is the picture of one who is able to reflect back after he has come face to face with death. Now, I do not believe David is the author of this particular uh, hymn. I believe Hezekiah is the author of this hymn. Now, in order to gain that background, that's why I've asked you to look into Psalm or Isaiah chapter 38 with me. So if you have that passage, let's take a look at it. Isaiah 38, beginning with verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill. This was, by the way, a wonderful king of Israel. And was at the point of death. I like to call it death's door. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, 
how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion. And remember that I have done good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Now, I know some of you might be a little disappointed that I'm not going to deal with the fact that it appears as though God extended or changed his mind concerning the number of years that Hezekiah was going to live as the result of his prayer. That is not what this passage teaches. That's a parenthesis, and I'm not going to go there this morning. We'll do that some other time. I want to look at the bigger principle here. Because when you go to Psalm 116, you have Hezekiah's reflection on what God did at that moment. Hezekiah was at death's door. He was told by the prophet he was going to die. He turns and he faces the wall and he begins to pray a very simple prayer. And in that prayer, you will not find one word in which Hezekiah asks God to spare his life. What you find instead is a reflection on his life. He says, remember me, Lord. Remember that I love you. Remember that I have done what is right. He reflects on his character. He reflects on his life's mission. He looks back and he says, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion have done what is good in your eyes. If the prophet were to walk to you today and say tomorrow, you're going to die. Would you be able to turn to the wall and say that kind of a prayer? I have been faithful to you. Lord, remember my faithfulness. Remember my devotion. Remember how I have done good in your eyes. Would you be able to pray that kind of a prayer? Subsequently, God does a remarkable thing. He brings him back from death's door. And in response to that, Psalm 116 is written. There are different genres of hymnody in the book of Psalms. We've talked about uh, some of them in the past. This one is what we call a psalm of thanksgiving. A psalm of thanksgiving usually follows a lament some sort of painful situation that has come up in the psalmist's life. Perhaps he is experiencing physical pain. Perhaps he is experiencing some sort of broken relationship, some failed faith experience. 
In this particular case, the lament is that of Hezekiah as he faces the prospect of imminent death. What we call Thanksgiving hymns are always broken up into three parts. That's how you can recognize a Thanksgiving hymn. Thanksgiving hymns were always the sequel to a lament. It was the follow-up to the painful experience. In fact, the word Thanksgiving in the Old Testament is the word hoda. And it's the same word that's used to speak of public confession. Hoda, or thanksgiving, and public confession are one and the same thing. They're two sides to the same coin. You will see as this psalm unfolds that you cannot thank God without also confessing him. Confession publicly and thanksgiving publicly are the result of God's work in your life as the result of some sort of painful affliction, some sort of difficult circumstance. And usually in these thanksgiving hymns, the psalmist would also promise God something. He would say, God, when you deliver me, I will be sure to go into the temple and fulfill the vow that I made as I prayed for that deliverance. And so as God fulfilled that particular deliverance, the person who has been delivered would go into the temple and in the process, he would invite others to come with him. He would offer the burnt sacrifice. He would stand up and give personal testimony of how God delivered him. And the whole congregation would then begin to give thanksgiving and confession before God. That's how you know it's a thanksgiving hymn. The opening section of a thanksgiving hymn is where the psalmist declares his intent to praise God. Look at verse 1. And verse 2 of Psalm 116, you'll see the structure. He says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. Now, there are some translations that say, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. We'll talk about that in a moment. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. There's the intent. I intend to give public thanksgiving. Then the second or the central section of a thanksgiving hymn mirrors the song of lament. As the psalmist recounts his trouble, he looks back on what he asked God to do, his plea and his deliverance. The second section of this particular hymn is in verse 3 through verse 6. And we'll talk about those in a moment. The third section, or the concluding section, is the actual song of thanksgiving. And it includes a promise to praise God in the future. And it's an invitation for others to join the psalmist in giving public thanksgiving and confession. You'll find that in verse 8 through 19. And we'll talk about that next week. 
What I want to show you, what I hope will, I will be able to demonstrate for you, is this legacy principle. Let me recite for you the principle, and then let's look at the context of Psalm 116 to flesh it out. Here's the principle, and I hope this is yours as well. The overwhelming majority of this church, which is a young church, you do not have grandchildren. I'm going to tell you something. When you get them, you're going to turn into a different animal. Amen. Grandchildren are a wonderful gift. I like to put it this way, because you love them twice. You love them because they're your children's children, and you love them because of who they are. I remember when our first grandson was born, and uh, his father, who happens to be the one who leads the service up here, watched me interact with him. He just kind of shook his head. He says, Dad, I, I think you love Marky more than you love me. <laughs> and I said to him, and what part of that don't you understand? <laughs> you do turn into a different person. And so the burden of my heart is not just for you who are parents, but for you who are grandparents because your job is not finished. You have a legacy to build and you parents have a legacy to start and you grandchildren and children are to draw from the promises God has given you through your parents and through your grandparents. Otherwise, the church is but one generation removed from extinction. And so many evangelical conservative denominations and movements die on the vine because the legacy is not passed on. Why? Because the tendency of Bible-believing Christians is toward liberalism. History proves that out. The further we move away from the teaching and the preaching and the centrality of Scripture, the next generation will pick up where we left off if we drift, they're only going to drift further and further and further until there's a generation down here that does not even believe that the Bible is the word of God. That's legacy. And our task is to build a legacy, a legacy of faithfulness, a legacy that can turn your head to the wall and say, Lord, remember how much I've loved you. Remember how faithful I've been to you. You see, what we have here is that legacy principle. Let me spell it out. I want my grandchildren to learn to have content and grateful spirits rooted in their salvation that never, ever presumes upon the grace of God. Let me say it again. I want my grandchildren to have content and grateful spirits rooted in their salvation that never ever presumes upon the grace of God. And you'll find that in Psalm 116. Let me tell you something about presumptuous living. Probably best typified in an email I got this past week from a radio listener. I wish I had brought it with me because I could not help but first, my first response was to say, are you kidding me? Here's the question. Something like this. Pastor, I have a question for you. If I divorce my wife for irreconcilable differences, 
and I go and live with another woman with the intent of repenting, and then I marry that woman, will God give me forgiveness and a full spiritual life with this other woman? My first response was, you've got to be kidding me. First of all, because scripture does not even recognize something called irreconcilable differences. You don't have any basis for divorce in the first place. If you marry this woman, or if you go and live with this woman, or if you consummate your marriage with this other woman, you do so in adultery. My bigger problem with what this man had to say is this. How could you presume upon the grace of God that way? Something like what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6. He said this, listen. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now there's a good question. Shall we continue in sin in order that grace may be applied and we be forgiven? In other words, if we choose to live a life of sin contrary to the mind and the purposes of God, can we claim God's grace and favor? What's his answer? God forbid. How shall we, who are dead to sin, live any longer in it? How dare we think we can presume upon the grace of God? So therefore, we have to ask the question. What do we need to develop in our spirits so that we do not become Christians who presume upon the grace of God? That may be a question you want to ask about some particular sin that you've been struggling with in your marriage or in your home or in your personal life where day in and day out and day in and day out you do the same thing and you walk back and you're just as foolish as the man who wrote me the email presuming that you can just go ahead and do whatever you want to do because tomorrow God's going to forgive you. That's presumption upon the grace of God. I think in one way, shape, or form, we all do that. But now the question is, what is the antidote for presumptuous living upon the grace of God, presuming upon the grace of God? At the top of the list is a thankful heart a contented spirit. You see, if you are thankful and content and you understand the mercy and the compassion of God and you're able to turn your face toward that wall and declare your faithfulness to him as a direct result of his faithfulness to you, you cannot have a presumptuous soul because a thankful soul and a soul that is presumptuous are antithetical. Psalm 116, look with me at verse 1 through 4. It's a thankful heart that hinders a presumptuous spirit. I love the Lord. You see, this is his psalm of thanksgiving as the result of his lament. This is Hezekiah. I love the Lord. How casually we say that. You know, when I first became a Christian, there was an old man who was largely responsible in those very early, um, very uh, difficult years of my Christian walk. 
I didn't know a whole lot about what it meant to be a Christian. I just knew I had been, I had been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And I'll never forget the question he would ask me every Sunday. It was like he was waiting for me. Elderly man, he was always waiting for me. He'd come up to me. He'd take me by both shoulders. He'd look me square in the eye and he'd say, do you still love the Lord? You know the key word there? Still. You know, we walk up, do you love the Lord? Yeah, I love the Lord. Dope. Do you still love the Lord? Do you really, truly, honestly love the Lord? Or do you presume upon that love? I love the Lord, verse 1, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Now, you'll recall that cry. That cry was not a cry to spare him his life. Not once did he say, spare me my life. So why does he say now that he heard my cry for mercy? Because he knew he was going to stand in minutes before a holy God. And he says, Lord, remember, I love you. You see, he lived in the context of eternity. And he knew he was going to face a holy God. Because, verse 2, he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. You know, these are pregnant words in this verse. They're so packed with meaning. Like the word cords there. It's the same word that's used of a man who's tied up hands and feet to the debtor, to the man that he owes money to, the man who is his master, ties him up, will not let him go because he's in debt. He says, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave. The word anguish there is used of Two flintstones tied together to aggravate the whole situation, to create heat in the pain, to bring your pain to a new level. You ever face death? Those of you who have, whether it be personal or with those you love, there is nothing uglier, hotter, more intense or painful than having to face death. It's an ugly, ugly, vicious, relentless, cruel, deceptive enemy. It is the heart of who Satan is. Death is ugly. If you do not believe that, you have never ever stepped back to take a long, hard look at what's going on on that cross. Because that's why he came. To face to face deal with this enemy called death. There is nothing more intense. Nothing uglier. He says I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Which means he didn't ask for this. It came by surprise. We had a family just this past week. They were here at the earlier service. They didn't ask for what happened this past week. Wonderful, wonderful 18-year-old son, Matthew. 
was suddenly taken from them in a car accident. When I heard that news, I said, oh, Lord, be merciful to them. Because they're about to experience incredible darkness. That's why he says before he says, I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. He says, the anguish, look at that, the anguish of the grave came upon me. You know what the word used there for grave is translated as in many other places? Hell. Hell. And for those of you who have been stung by this ugly enemy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember in some of the early days, and even as recent as yesterday, I remember saying, God, this can't possibly, this can't possibly be anything other than hell. Now, I know that's not true, because hell is worse. But in terms of life as we know it, there is nothing more intense, nothing more difficult, nothing darker than to have to face death. He says, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of hell overcame me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Many scholars believe that this entire psalm is not at all based in some historical character. They reject the theory that it's Hezekiah. They reject the theory that it's David of whom the psalm speaks. And they say this is purely a Christological psalm. Which means that the psalm is talking about Jesus. It's a messianic psalm, if you will, that points to the confrontation with death that Jesus had. Now, I believe that's true. I believe that ultimately this is the bigger picture here is for us to see what happened between Jesus and his father as Jesus confronts this ugly enemy called death. But I also believe it's an exemplar him, which means God has practical application to us, and he used the life of Hezekiah to illustrate it. You know, the favor of God rests upon those who are the recipients of his grace and his mercy. He hears our cries. He carries your sorrows. He purposes in you to work all things together for good, to you who love him, to you who are the called ones according to his purpose. All things, ugly things, pretty things, good things, bad things, bright things, dark things. He promises to take all of the events and circumstances, pain and sorrow in your life and connect the dots. He never promises that you'll understand that in this life. He may give you hints or pieces. Certainly Hezekiah did not know that he was facing 15 more years of life. For the prophet had just come in to tell him, put your house in order. You're going to die. Yet he was able to stand back years later and see how God marvelously and majestically connected the dots. He says, I love the Lord 
for he has heard my cry. By the way, those verbs are in what we call the present tense, which means you don't just love the Lord today and not love the Lord tomorrow. A continuous verb is what a present verb is. I keep on loving the Lord because he keeps on hearing my voice. I love the Lord continually because the Lord continually hears my voice. I am responding to God's action in my life. He hears and I love. And I keep on loving. And he keeps on hearing. And he keeps on hearing even when I'm not loving. Because God is faithful. You and I are not. He says, I love the Lord, for he has. And then he goes on and says, and I will praise him. Past, present, future. You see, it's a walk. It's an ongoing day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. You know, we have prayed often and in a variety of situations because we're on a journey. I talked to you about the Valley of Bacah, that trench-filled journey of Psalm 84 that oftentimes is motivated by simple faith and not feeling. We're on a journey. Psalm 84 calls it a pilgrimage. And in that pilgrimage, we face all kinds of different situations, some of them more intense than others. But this passage is telling me that all along the way, God has heard my cry. That's grace. The fact that God would hear it at all. The fact that God would condescend to hear my cry, to wipe the tears. Why would God care? But now we can't live presumptuously but we must live in great anticipation of exactly what God is working out for my good. Look at verse 4. He says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. That's what makes me think it was Hezekiah because that's exactly what Hezekiah said. Now listen. What did he call upon? The what? The name of the Lord. Now, before you go into some sort of mantra, some sort of pathetic, legalistic end to your prayer, Lord, do this, that, and the other thing, and here's the key now, in Jesus' name. Remember, I said that in Jesus' name. You ever hear Christians pray? We are pathetic prayers. We don't even know how to pray. Sometimes I think we are praying so that the people around us will feel our pain rather than actually petitioning God. Sometimes I think we're showing off. Our, our demeanor changes and we pray these pathetic prayers and then we say, in Jesus' name. There it is. That means it's going to be answered. Is it? Does it? You know, when you pray in the name of God, what you're literally doing at that point is submitting. What are you submitting to? His will. 
That's what the word name there means. That's what he's talking about. In the name of the Lord means according to the will of God. Here's my request, Lord. But now I submit according to your will. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Thy kingdom come, my will be done. Right? No. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. That's what it means in the name of the Lord. It's a submission that basically says, Lord, I am walking in step with you. You know my heart, I've expressed it. But now make me aware of what your will and your purpose is. I want to know your mind, and that's why I'm praying right now. I'm praying so that I might know your will, so that I might walk in step with your spirit. Remember Hezekiah's first response when facing his lament. His first response, not his last response, was to pray. Isaiah comes in, Mr. King, God just gave me a message. Get your check signed, get your will taken care of, get the books in line and alignment, make sure all of your business affairs are in order, because you're going to die. Hezekiah did not say, what do you mean? Explain that to me. I'm not ready for this. Why are you saying such things to me? Did you have too much to drink last night? What's going on? No questions asked because this was the prophet of God. No protest made. He simply prayed a very short prayer. Oh, Lord, save me. You see, God isn't interested in how long your prayers are. He's interested in how sincere your heart is. Sometimes we pray without even knowing we're praying. Even this past week, I was praying this way. I don't even know who I'm talking to. I certainly at this moment don't even know who you are. I don't feel any emotion. I don't feel as though you and I are, I don't feel that, that emotion that I'm supposed to feel. But I'm going to pray anyhow. Because I know, Lord, that emotions are foolish. There are times when my emotions tell me to feel good about my walk with you when I really ought to feel bad about my walk with you. So, Lord, in faith, not feeling, I want to know your will. I want to know your mind and your purpose. You see, I don't want to be the kind of a Christian that does this kind of spiritual yo-yo-manship. Is that a good word? Yo-yo-manship? I don't want to be that kind of person, that I'm up if I feel good, I'm down if I feel bad, I pray if I feel good, I don't pray if I feel bad, I preach if I feel good, I don't preach if I feel bad. Otherwise, my spiritual walk is conditioned upon my feelings. And nowhere in Scripture will you find that that is what God seeks to honor in your life. In fact, what he says, our walk by faith is what is pleasing to God. To believe in his promises when his promises seem to be a million miles away. To trust him in the midst of lament. 
To believe that God is faithful even in the midst of sorrow. That whole psalm says that. Verse 2, I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Verse 14, I will fulfill my vows. Uh, verse 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering. You see, here it is. A thankful heart is motivated because it has been delivered from sin and death. That's what drives you to pray, to obey, to live out, to practice action, and in a response to grace. I've been delivered. Christ paid the price for me. My sins are no more. I have been set free. As far as the east is from the west, he will remember my sin no more. I have been declared innocent, even though I am guilty, thus acquitted by the grace of God. That's a thankful heart. That's a grateful spirit. A thankful heart is never presumptuous upon past blessings and past grace. A thankful heart walks in a spirit of continuous prayer, and it always moves from grace to action. You'll notice that all the way through the scriptures, whenever God is declaring some aspect of his marvelous grace, what's he say next? Therefore, here is my grace, therefore, what are you to do with that graceful experience in your life? What are you to do with the fact that God has set you free from the pit? What are you to do in response to the deliverance by God's grace from your own personal lament? Therefore, grace always gives birth to action. We must then respond to God's grace by acting out. That's why he says, I'm going to the temple and I am going to pay a vow. I am going to fulfill the vow and I'm going to invite others to do so. Why? Because God has been good to me. God has extended his marvelous grace to me. He says in verse Five, the Lord is gracious and righteous and compassionate. Three very pregnant words. Gracious, that means he hears. Righteous, that means he judges. Full of compassion means that he pardons. He hears my cry. He judges my sin by placing it on his son. And he extends to me compassion. How then can I ever doubt his will to deliver me? How then can I ever say that the promises of God are null and void? You may feel it, but you can't point to anything in God's track record that can substantiate those bad feelings. If he were not gracious, I could never hope he will hear my cry. If he were not righteous, I could never depend upon any of his promises. If he were not full of compassion, I could never expect deliverance. I could never expect that God would give me his Holy Spirit as a deposit that guarantees my eternal rest. 
He says in verse 6, the Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. When you were in great need, did he not prove to be faithful? And if you're in great need now, can you not believe the promises, all of them, are yes and amen in Christ? If you can't say yes, then you haven't taken a very good look at the ugliness of the cross. Turn your head to the wall. Say, Lord, I have loved you. I have been faithful because you have been merciful. A simple-hearted person is a person who is helpless and hopeless. You cannot help yourself and you have no hope. That is precisely what he means when he says, when I was in great need. The cords of death immobilized your spirit and yet he saved you. Let me close with this. When my mother-in-law, who built a very strong heritage, and that heritage continues to build a heritage, when she was lying in the hospital dying, her granddaughter came in to see her, 16-year-old granddaughter came in to see her and spent the night with her. And my mother-in-law, lying on that deathbed, asked her granddaughter to read her Psalm 116. And as she read verse 1, my mother-in-law shook her head and said, no, that's not it. And as she read verse 2, she said, no, no, that's not it either. Keep reading. And then as she read verse 3 and verse 4, she became very agitated. She says, no, that's not the one. That's not it. And then finally she came to verse 7. And her granddaughter read this. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. And my mother-in-law looked at her and said, that's it. That's the one I'm looking for. And the next morning, she went home to be with the Lord. You see, just like Hezekiah, she turned her head to the wall and said, Lord, I love you. You have loved me. I have been faithful to you. I have done what is right. You have been good to me. Can you say that? Tomorrow morning, when you are dying, will you be able to lie on the bed, turn your face to the wall, and say, I love you, Lord, because you have been faithful to me. I have loved you because you first loved me. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.